Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Okay, and I read 1 Corinthians 6 from verse 9. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. 14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do, not, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually, sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Can we just um, bow our heads as we say a prayer this morning? Lord, we thank you for the grace to be in your presence this morning. We thank you for your word which has come to us. We ask that even as um, Pastor Steve brings the word, that you open our ears to hear your word, to address every of our situations in Jesus' name. We also ask, Lord, that you open our hearts to be receptive of your word, that we'll take corrections where we need to take corrections, and we'll amend our lives that shall be pleasing to you alone. For in Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Joy. Great to be with you this morning. Today I want to talk about the body, the human body. Every one of us has a body. You cannot be a person without a body. We are embodied people. It's who we are. We are physical people, flesh and blood. In Bill Bryson's uh, superb book, highly recommended, The Body and A Guide for Occupants, He goes through all the fascinating details about the human body and how it works. Did you know it takes 7 billion billion billion, that's 7 octillion atoms to make your body? That is 7 with 27 zeros after it. Did you know our lungs 
are so well designed to absorb and excrete the necessary volume of gas that if they were laid out flat, they'd be the size of a tennis court. Did you know that if you laid all the DNA in your body end to end, it would stretch 10 billion miles beyond the orbit of Pluto? So congratulations. Your body is quite something. Your body is remarkable. And Bryson does a fantastic job inspiring us just how remarkable our body is. And despite his secular, atheist assumptions, as he details the complexity of the human body, he cannot help but reach for words like wonder, glory, eternal, awe, breathtaking, miraculous, mystery. Though he takes a completely evolutionary approach to how our body came to be, Reading the book for me was a big argument into the prime mover, a creator God who created us. And that's where Bryson and I differ. Despite the brilliance of the 400-page book, Bryson fails to answer one question. What is the purpose of your body? And he admits this. Altogether, it takes 7 billion billion atoms to make you. No one can say why those 7 billion 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 have such an urgent desire to be you. No one can say why. All the physical stuff that makes you you is you. For Bryson, it's all random. There's no right re reason or rhyme or greater purpose. While your body is amazing and awe-inspiring, according to him, there's no greater purpose for why your body exists. So what is the purpose of your body? 1 Corinthians 6 gives the most extraordinary, exalted, and historically groundbreaking answer to that question. But before I look at that, let me set the scene in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 6. The Apostle Paul is speaking to a church that is confused about sex and sexual ethics. We learned last week from Maffey that someone is sleeping with their mother-in-law and the church isn't taking action. We learned this week that the men in the church are sleeping with prostitutes, and no one is taking action. We're going to learn next week in chapter 7 that some people are so confused about sex, they've gone the other way and are saying we shouldn't have any sex, not even within marriage. So the Corinthians are confused, to put it mildly. And much of their wrong thinking about sex stemmed from their wrong... Sorry, much of their wrong behaviour stemmed from their wrong thinking about the body. The Corinthians didn't understand the purpose of the body. So six times in chapter six, Paul says this. Do you not know? Or in verse nine, he says, do not be deceived. The Corinthians were living according to the stories, the lies of the culture that they lived in with regards to what the body was for. They were being deceived about what the body was for, and as a result, sexual immorality was rife. So from 1 Corinthians 6, I want to look at two things, wrong and distorted views of the body, and God's view of the body. There are two distorted views of the body. The first one is that the body is irrelevant and to be escaped. This was the Corinthian view. In fact, the Corinthians had a slogan that was said all about the city, we can read it in verse 13. Paul quotes their view of the body. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. This is the Greek view of the body. Greek dualism. The body is bad, but the spirit is good. 
That is why salvation for the Greeks was about escaping the body, being free from the limitations of the body, setting the soul free from the prison that was the body. And into that Greek view, the Corinthians thought, well, my stomach needs food and food goes into the stomach, all that physical, but like it's, it's all irrelevant. In the end, God's going to destroy them both. God is only surely concerned about the soul, the spiritual. He's going to destroy the body, isn't he? Well, what did that view of the body mean for sexual ethics? It meant, well, do whatever you want with your sexual organs because one day they will be destroyed too. So just as the stomach needs food and, well, the body needs sex. When I'm hungry, well, I'll eat, and when I have a sexual urge, I'll have sex, or I'll masturbate, or I'll look at porn, or whatever else I want to, no, sorry, whatever else I need to do. Sex is just an appetite to be satisfied when and how I want. Do you see, the Corinthians thought your body doesn't matter, so it doesn't matter what you do with your sexual urges, just do as you need, it's just an appetite, so they were just sleeping with prostitutes, verse 15 and 16. It's 2,000 years since Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians. How similar are things in Dublin today? And we have our slogans. No one can tell me what to do with my body. My body is mine and I choose to do what I want with it. My true me is my inner feelings and desires and I can mold my physical body to match the true me which is inside. My body doesn't define me but my sexual orientation or my felt gender experience defines me. They're the modern slogans. They're not too far from Corinth. And of course, the modern view of the body and the Greek view of the body is at the heart of the debates around transgenderism and transhumanism, where the body is tailored according to the desires and preferences of the person. And this perspective not only cheapens the view of the body, it also cheapens our view of sex, because sex is just an appetite. It's just about self-expression and self-satisfaction. Just this week, my son Jacob was, uh, had his sex education curriculum, and here is one slide that he brought home to me and showed me. Why do people have sex? What did the teacher say? For pleasure, to release sexual tension, and for reproduction. Okay, third, reproduction. But as Jacob immediately said as he came home, Dad, they said nothing about marriage. Sex is not a sign and seal of a covenant in our culture today. Sex has nothing transcendent or divine or covenantal. It's just about what? Self-satisfaction, pleasure, releasing sexual tension. Oh yeah, third, like once I've satisfied myself, we'll think about children. The second year Irish national curriculum isn't far from the Corinthian view of the first century. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God's going to destroy them both. That's one view of the body. There's another view of the body that we'll come across today, and it's almost the exact opposite. And it's that the body is everything and to be idolized. On the one hand, we hear the body doesn't matter. Do what you want with it. On the other hand, we hear you must have the perfect body, the perfect waistline, the perfect shape, the perfect face. And so every men's and women's magazine will tell you how to get the perfect body. I'm now a 42-year-old man, I am relentlessly given ads on Twitter about how 40-year-old men got back in shape. <laughs> with pig, yeah, Craig gets that. With, <laughs> with muscular tan bodies, the perfect six-pack, the perfect white teeth, the perfect wavy golden locks. I cannot go online without seeing these adverts anymore. Who of us doesn't know this narrative about our body? 
It's teenagers that feel it most acutely, but we all feel it. My body isn't good enough. I'm not good enough. If only I had a better, bigger, slimmer, stronger, more shapely, more beautiful body, then I'd be enough. And this idolizing of the body is in nearly every advert you watch for a car to a perfume to everything and every movie you go to see. We don't measure up, we're not good enough, and we're very insecure about our bodies. Would it be a stretch to say that most of us, all of us, are not content with our body? We have an unhealthy relationship with our body and our culture leading to shame, frustration, and despair. In his excellent book by Sam Albury, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, he recounts a story of a good friend of his called Shelby, who was a great writer and speaker with a great job. He was happily married. Albury says about his friend Shelby, I always assumed he was a confident guy. And then Shelby told Albury about his struggles. Here's the thing, I'm short. I've always been that way. And from an early age, oh, I cried when I wrote this. And from an early age, I can remember being made fun of. For, I wasn't short growing up, so this is not realizing, you know. I can remember being made fun of for being below average when it came to height. Naturally, I joked about this on a regular basis to get laughs and protect myself from getting injured by the cruelty of people's words. Should they be inclined to get laughs about at my expense, I would just beat them to the punch. On one occasion... As a student, Shelby was hanging out with some friends. Two of the girls said that they were to take off and asked the guys to walk them back to campus, Shelby says. I quickly volunteered to walk them back. And after doing so, in what I could only assume was an attempt to be funny, my friend Anne looked at Kirsten and said, does he count? And because I was regularly willing to shell out short jokes about myself and probably felt comfortable doing that the same that night, thinking it would be funny and no big deal, what Anne didn't know, however, is that I would carry that three-word question with me for years to come. It would deeply wound me and define the heart of my struggle in life as a person, a man, a friend, a romantic option for a girl, a missionary, and even a child of God. Does he count? Those words made Shelby believe his height was forever proof that he was diminished as a man, as a person, and even as a Christian. But then words about our bodies do that, don't they? And Shelby's story is one I can relate to well, hence my tears. Struggling personally with body, image, and identity through my teenage years and my 20s. To everyone else, I was confident. But I didn't think I matched up inside. And there was a deep insecurity in me. And it took decades for God to set me free and he's still setting me free at the age of 42. So there's a contradiction at the heart of the modern view of the body. On the one hand, the body is irrelevant. Do whatever you want with it. It's yours to change, define, and use as you want. In the end, it's going to be destroyed because, well, everything's going to be destroyed. So do whatever you need to do to escape its limitations. And then the body is everything. You must match up and have the perfect body. According to the Bible, both views are wrong. So let's talk about God's view of the body. We're given four theological truths about the body. The first one is that your body was handcrafted by God. Paul doesn't mention this in 1 Corinthians 6, but as a Jewish man, well-versed in the Old Testament, he assumes it. Psalm 139, For you created my inmost being. 
You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. David talks about how bodies have been made with great care and attention. We've been individually handcrafted. We're an intricate work of God. God is the ultimate artisan. Every one of us is made, not by a machine, not by just some random process of evolution, but through the deliberate craft of our designer God. God has produced billions of human bodies, but not one of us is mass-produced. When you hold a newborn baby in your arms and you pick up the baby with such care because there's an appropriate fearfulness, we are aware of the sheer preciousness of the little bundle in our arms. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. There are unplanned pregnancies, but there are no unplanned babies. Every one of us is a product of God's deliberate choice. No one is an accident. We're all made by the great artisan. All this means is that your body you have is the body God meant to give you, even when it's not wonderful. Aubrey says, we can often feel about our body the way we feel when we pick up a hand of cards at the start of a game. Why was I dealt this body? But in the case of our body, it wasn't random shuffling of a deck or the luck of the draw. And he draws a powerful application for us all to consider. He says, for those of us who are deeply unhappy with our body and even resentful of it, the path to a healthy response needs to be beginning by giving thanks to God for it. Hard though it may be for us to understand, God meant us to have our particular body. Your body is a gift. Aubrey says, we need to thank God for our bodies. Speaking personally, meditating long and hard through my teenage and 20s over Psalm 139 was vital to break through around my body image. Secondly, your body was redeemed by God's son. Paul says, you were bought at a price. You've been redeemed, which implies that our bodies had been taken captive and needed to be bought with a price out of slavery. Well, what have our bodies been taken captive to? The Bible says sin and death. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that when sin came into the world, death and decay came to our bodies. Our bodies are now broken. We get sick and die. We suffer and experience affliction in our bodies. Our bodies can be deformed. The older we get, the less our bodies function as they should. This is every human being's experience. In the next letter to the Corinthians, Paul's going to say we are like jars of clay. We are weak and fragile and, and can break. And so our bodies experience the power of death and decay. But also our bodies experience the power of sin and shame. And the brokenness in our bodies is revealed most powerfully when we read that Adam and Eve discovered they were naked and tried to cover up. We experience shame about our bodies. We experience the consequences of our sin and other, other people's sin and we feel inadequate and we are captives and we do need to be redeemed. Our bodies need to be redeemed from the power of death and the power of sin. And Paul says that redemption process has started. You have been bought with a price. In verse 11, he says, but you were washed, 
you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. God has redeemed us. We are washed, which means the physical washing of our body in baptism. All of our filth and our sin, we've been made clean. We are sanctified, which means we are set apart as holy for God. We've been justified, which means we've been made right with God. He has dealt with the guilt that was a barrier. So we have been set free from the power of sin and shame. Jesus has and the Holy Spirit continues to set us free from those powers. He's dealt with our guilt. We are spotless and without blemish in God's sight. He's dealt with our shame. We can be naked and unashamed with our God who loves us. But what about the power of death? How have we been set free from that? We'll come to that in a moment, but Paul has something else to tell us about our body. Thirdly, your body is indwelt by God the Spirit. We often talk about our union with Christ in spiritual terms. So in other words, we become Greek dualists. My body, my identity and my soul is now united with Christ. What is true of Christ is true of my soul. And that's true, but Paul goes further and said, it's also your body. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Our bodies are now joined to Christ, not just in a theoretical sense. We are members of Christ. For the Christian, the parts of our bodies are now joined to him, so we have no liberty to unjoin our bodies from Christ. The parts of our body are now Christ's. We cannot help but take Christ wherever we go, in our body. How does Christ get joined to my body and go wherever I go with my body? Well, verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who have you received from God? So we're now a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in us. We're the sacred place of God's presence on earth. We are the place that God has chosen to dwell on earth in our bodies. My body is more of a temple of God than any temple that was ever built in Jerusalem. What a thought. Paul's application here is striking and powerful. Almost too much to think about. It'll probably make you squirm in your seat, but think about it, we must. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two shall become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So my body is united with the Lord, but also when I have sex with someone, the Bible says my body is united with that person, the two become one flesh. So I'm one with the Lord and I'm one with that person in spirit and in flesh. But that means... I am uniting Jesus to whoever I am having sex with or masturbating. I'm involving Jesus in that act or looking at porn. I'm involving Jesus in that act or having a sexual fantasy because I am united to him and I'm, whatever I unite my body to, he gets united to. My body is now a member of Christ. The Holy Spirit now indwells in me. So whatever I do with my body, I do to Jesus. As one person very bluntly put it, if you shack up with a prostitute, it's like dragging Christ into bed with her too. When you put your sexual organs where they don't belong, you're putting the Lord Jesus where he does not belong. We don't leave Jesus outside the brothel. If we go in, he goes in with us. 
We don't leave Jesus behind when we look at porn or masturbate or start engaging sexually with our girlfriend or boyfriend or have sexual fantasies. What we do implicates Jesus. Do you not know? Your bodies are members of Christ himself. Do you not know? Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you've received from God. Paul says, I want to renew your minds so I can renew your behavior. Friends, there's no such thing as casual sex. With this view of the body, sex is always serious, is always touched by the glory and the power of God. Sex always unites us with the person that we're having sex with in a powerful way, creating a bond that can only be separated by death. Sex is not cheap because sex is glorious and precious and it is so beautiful and powerful. You mustn't do whatever you want with it just to satisfy whatever desires you have. Paul's going to say in verse 20, honour God with your bodies. Yes, sex is partly about pleasure. And yes, sex is certainly about procreation. But sex in the Bible is more than those two things. It's about a covenant between a man and his wife. Because the earthly covenant of marriage is a signpost to the eternal covenant, an eternal union, an eternal pleasure, an eternal place of security with God that is found in Christ and his unity with his church. Sex is about one person saying to another person, I'm completely, exclusively, and totally yours until death do us part. Because in Christ, God has given himself exclusively and completely to me. We mustn't cheapen sex or make it say anything less. To do so would to create doubt in our hearts. Well, if sex is cheap and self-serving, is God's commitment to me cheap and self-serving? May it never be said by the way we view sex. Paul says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Because sex creates this inevitable, till death do us part, one flesh bonding, no other sin threatens to put your body under the mastery of something else the way sexual sin does. Sexual sin further enmeshes itself with our body in a way that no other sin does. So we must flee sexual immorality. We are playing with fire and we need the guardrails of heterosexual marriage to handle the fire without getting burned. This is why Paul says in verse 20, 12, again, quoting the Corinthian slogans back to them. They are modern Dublin slogans. I have the right to do anything, you say. But Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. The law of the land and the moral consensus of the society you might live in says, well, if do what you want, as long as everyone's consenting, do whatever you need to do. Paul says, no, 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 is it beneficial? I think it's fair to say that much of our modern slogans and our modern attitude to sex is not having a beneficial effect on society. Having strayed from God's standards of sex, we are reaping the consequences. Our society is not whole or healthy or flourishing when it comes to sex and relationships. Everyone can see that. You don't have to be a Christian. Our current slogans are not working. And Paul goes further. Again, he quotes the Corinthians. I have the right to do anything, they say. But Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. If you play with the beautiful and powerful gift of sex that God has given us, you'll not only get burned, you'll become enslaved. It will master you. Society may say that it's okay, but that doesn't mean you'll not fall under its power. 
with an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing return. You'll go around saying, look how free I am. But internally, you'll know how enslaved you are. Addiction, shame, paranoia, dissatisfaction, anxiety, low self-esteem, comparison, envy. Sex has a power. Do not treat it lightly or make it cheap. Our body is handcrafted by God. Every one of us has the body that God meant us to have, so give thanks to God for it. Our body is, our body is redeemed by God from the power of sin, so flee sexual immorality. Our body is indwelt by the Spirit of God, so we must honour God with our bodies. And fourthly, your body will be raised by God, by his power. God raised the Lord from the dead. He will raise us also. Jesus was raised from the dead with a physical body. Jesus ascended to heaven with a physical body. Jesus rules and reigns right now at the right hand of the Father with a physical body. Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead in a physical body. Jesus is the first fruits of the new world God is creating. And one day, all those that have put their trust in Jesus will be the rest of the harvest as God redeems our physical world, including our physical bodies. Paul puts it else, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. He will also raise us. He puts it like this in Romans 8. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 when speaking about the future resurrection of God's people and the redemption of our bodies, the body that is so perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. I, for one, cannot wait for my resurrection body and no more Twitter ads. <laughs> I am eagerly looking forward to receiving it, my full redemption as a son and the redemption of my body. What a day. Friends, the body is not irrelevant. It's very relevant to God. He made it. He redeemed it. He indwells it. One day he's going to raise it. So we must honor God with our bodies. We must steward them. We must look after them. Specific application from 1 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality. But we must consider our diet, our fitness, our sleep and our health. Our bodies matter. We must steward them. And another area of application that Paul would not have had in his mind was online activity and identity. How much should we be forming a disembodied identity online through disembodied actions online? If the body is irrelevant, you can escape it online and do whatever you want online, but 1 Corinthians 6 tells us our body is not irrelevant. So we need to think carefully about what it means to be embodied people when the world is moving increasingly online. But can you also see, friends, the biblical view of the body means that whilst our body is not irrelevant, it's not everything. Because one day we'll receive our perfect bodies. One day we'll get the body we all want. One day, it's coming. One day you'll have a body that is free from sin, death, decay, and shame. One day, which helps us not just to wait eagerly, but wait patiently with the body that we do have. Being thankful to God for it, not neglecting it, but also not becoming obsessed with it.
We are not to be obsessed with our bodies, but with Jesus. We're not to idolize our bodies, but we're to worship Jesus. And it's on that note I want to end. The one we worship. This is the second time I cried. Will forever have a body with scars on. Just think on it. The invisible, eternal God, who had no body, took on a body. The word became flesh. He was made in human likeness and became a man. In his body, he knew every temptation we know. In his body, he felt weakness that we feel. In his body, he felt every bit of sickness and disease and frailty we know. And though he never gave in to sexual sin, he knew its power more than we know it because he resisted it. He lived obediently in his body to the glory of the Father. That body of his grew and knew all the struggles of puberty and teenage years. That body was mocked. It was spat upon. The face of Jesus had saliva on it. That body was whipped till flesh was hanging off his body and big chunks were taken out of his body. That body was punched. It was bruised. It was bleeding. A crown of thorns. Thorns, the curse, was stuffed into his physical temple. And he bled in his body. Nails were driven through his hands and his feet. That body was left hanging on a cross to be looked at naked. The spectacle, the scum of the earth, in unbearable heat until it could hang no more and died of suffocation, exhaustion or exposure from the weakness of his body that could go on no longer. That body was pierced and blood and water came out. That body was put in a tomb because it was dead. Paul says, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. What is your body worth? You might not think much about your body, but God thinks it's worth the precious blood of his son. Your body has been given eternal value. Jesus would die for your body to redeem it. This raises our self-esteem to the skies. The creator God who handcrafted my body as he meant it to be has redeemed it at the infinite cost of his body. I might not think much of my body, but Jesus thinks it's worth dying for. Maybe my view of my body should be Jesus' view of my body and I should start to give thanks for it. But also, when we think about what Jesus had to do for us in his body to redeem us, We can never say to God, it's not fair. I'm not able. It's too hard. The price is too high, God, for me to be obedient to you in my body. We can never say that to God now. Think of the price he paid. And when you struggle and don't understand the struggles you have with your body, know this, the one we worship will forever have a body scars on in the new creation like the apostle thomas we will see and touch the scars on jesus's body forever etched into his body to remind us of his eternal love and the cost of the redemption and forever will worship him in his body the lamb that was slain for the sins of the earth at the center of the trinitarian life of god Seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father, ruling the universe, there is now a human being with scars in his glorified body. When you struggle in your obedience to Jesus in your body, 
when you struggle to give thanks for your body, when you struggle with weakness in your body, remember his body and worship. It's only as we worship the risen Jesus and know the power of his spirit living in us that we can honor God with our bodies. What is the purpose of our bodies? Christ City Church, do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you've received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Let's pray. Take a moment just to be still before we respond in song. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word, which brings us out of our cultural moment and speaks eternally to us. Lord, even as I preach and I prepare, I'm still in tears because this is touching so deep to all of us. And we hear those slogans of our culture so loud. And so, Lord, we want to just take a moment to pause and to have our minds renewed that our behavior might follow. But we also want to have our hearts lifted afresh to Jesus, that we might worship him anew this morning. We thank you for our bodies, and I pray for all of us to find that hard to say, that we would learn to say thank you for the body we do have, handcrafted by you in our mother's womb. We thank you that you've redeemed it from the brokenness of sin, and you will one day fully redeem it from the brokenness of death and those powers. We thank you, God, the God of all eternity, that you've chosen to put your Holy Spirit and create a temple, a sacred space on earth in our body. And we thank you one day that we will be liberated from all the bondage to decay and we will worship you forever, the lamb that is on the throne, the one that was slain for our sins. And we will praise you and we will worship you and all the complexity of this life in our body will be healed. And we look forward eagerly and help us to wait patiently for that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.